Good afternoon and uh, welcome to the uh, book and its time, de uh, Developing a Period Eye. So uh, first I would like to introduce myself uh, quickly. I'm uh, Stéphanie Delamere. I am the Associate Curator of Fine Arts at Winterthur and an Affiliated Assistant Professor in the Winterthur Program in American Material Culture at the University of Delaware. And, <laughs> and it's um, finished. So this panel, we designed uh, this panel um, to investigate the, the bridges between critical bibliography and material culture studies. So we wanted to investigate the relationship between books and material culture and the, ma and the material culture in which they were produced. With the shift towards materiality of our textual artifacts, we wanted to investigate the connections between them and other objects, context, and ideas in which they were produced, used, or simply displayed. What can such inquiries reveal about individuals and the society in which they live? Because this panel was designed to convey specific skills and methodological approaches, we have uh, five short presentations, following by a response and a quick discussion. Our respondent here is Catherine Danrover. Catherine is the Broke Job Assistant Professor of Decorative Arts and Material Culture in the Winterthur Program in American Material Culture at the <laughs> University of Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> She's also the executive editor of the Winterthur Portfolio and the director of Winterthur's Visiting Research Program. So uh, keep our collections in mind if you have any interest in uh, material culture and our collections. She received her PhD in history from the College of William and Mary in Virginia. Her research interests address the materials and, act, uh, and act architectural heritage of Philadelphia and southeastern Pennsylvania and include the connection between material culture studies and the history of print and ephemera. She has a wide background and experience with archaeology, uh, research libraries, museums and cultural non-profit organizations, and has curated several exhibitions including Table Talk, Philadelphia in a New Nation, and Common Destinations, Maps in the American Experience. Our first um, presenter, our first presenters, are uh, Molly Patterson and Gabriella Angeloni. Gabriella is a PhD candidate in history at the University of South Carolina and the curator and house manager of Miles Bruton House in Charleston. Her dissertation is titled Reading Material, Personal Libraries and the Cultivation of Identity in, the Re in Revolutionary South Carolina and it explores book ownership, display and the culture of reading in the British Atlantic world. Molly is the collection team coordinator and manager at, of digital initiatives at the Newport Historical Society in Rhode Island. In this role, she coordinates collections, uh, staff projects, manages NHA's manuscript collection, and facilitates broad public engagement with the collections. Um, Molly has an MS in Library Science from Simons College and a B in Politics and Cultural History from Marlborough College. Before joining the staff at the Historical Society, she worked at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, Gordon Library, and Tufts University Digital Connect Collections and Archives. Um, their paper is titled Reconstructing Reading, William Ellery as Reader at the Newport Historical Society. Please welcome Molly and Gabby. I imagine few here recognize this miniature profile of William Ellery, one of Rhode Island's two signers of the Declaration, a self-taught lawyer, and most importantly for our purposes, an avid reader and book collector. I certainly didn't when I first heard his name casually dropped like he was a regular at the coffee shop around the corner. 
but over the course of a summer, I came to grow fond of the man, or at least fond of his personal library. In fact, over 30 of his books still survive, safely stored away in a local historical society's archival vault. Now, let's suppose a researcher goes to the historical society and requests to see a complete four-volume set of the first American edition of Sir William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England, published in this fair city between 1771 and 1772. It's a rare enough edition, but this one belonged to Mr. Ellery, one of 15 original subscribers who went on to sign the Declaration of Independence four years after its publication. To be honest, this researcher could just as easily and is rather more likely to go visit the Boston Athenaeum or the Library of Congress to see the partial sets of less obscure signers like John Adams or Thomas Jefferson. But unlike those in Boston or Washington, the Ellery set in Newport was kept together by the signers' descendants over several generations. Upon delivery to the table, our researcher sees the binding, Although worn, two Moroccan labels are relatively intact, and the image of a neat law binding evoked by Robert Bell's advertisements is not so difficult to imagine in its prime. Inside, at the top right corner of the title page, is a simple inscription, William Ellery's January 1774. Leafing through the pages, one finds annotations, typographical corrections, and other interventions written elegantly in the margins or within the text itself. And while Ellery's inscriptions and voluminous marginalia alone might be worthy of note to the curious academic, at the end of the appointment, all four are once again returned to their place in the vault. How many books experience this same fate at historical institutions, libraries, and archives, rolled out for the once-in-a-while researcher and then back from whence they came, a monotonous existence that pigeonholes them to little more than solitary objects that exist in a dimly lit, temperature-controlled vacuum. Fortunately, Newport Historical Society not only owns this portion of William Ellery's library, but they also have a number of associational things. Letters, glasses, wick trimmers, an armchair, and a desk, among others that enhance our ability to interpret the experience of reading and book ownership in the 18th and early 19th centuries through the life of one William Ellery. By placing books among these objects, as their own reader and owner did, it becomes much easier to comprehend the significant role of reading in William Ellery's daily life. Moreover, doing so reminds us that books, no matter how many or how few, were more than merely symbols of status or intellect. Like so many other things in the long 18th century, books were imbued with unique and highly individualized meanings. By considering William Ellery's surviving library more broadly, titles, conditions, marginalia and all, and situating it within the context of his life and times and other belongings, we can better understand his personal interests, professional pursuits, and the public identity he cultivated during the tumultuous years of the revolutionary era. Moreover, we might better understand the importance of saving books and their value as unique objects in this era of digitization. So to give a little more background on the man himself, um, Will, 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 William Ellery was born in Newport, Rhode Island on December 22, 1727, the second son of a merchant by the same name, and his mother, his mother, his mother, Elizabeth Almy. In 1744, at age 16, he had entered Harvard, Harvard College and he graduated three years later. He subsequently returned to Newport and he entered into his father's merchant business. 
Throughout the 1760s, he led local resistance to the stamp and the intolerable acts. He served as clerk of the general of the general assembly and was also a founder of Rhode Island College, today Brown, today it is Brown uh, University. With the death of his father and his first wife, Anne, in 1764, he gave up the uh, merchant business, which he never really enjoyed particularly anyway. And he instead dedicated himself entirely to studying law. By 1770, he had begun his own law practice. Six years later, and because of his active leadership in the previous decade, he was, he was elected by the Rhode Island General by the Rhode Island General Assembly to replace Delegate Samuel Ward at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. This was after Ward had died from smallpox. Ellery served as a as a road as a Rhode Island delegate through 1785. From 1786, he served as the commissioner for the Continental Loan Office in. Uh, Rhode Island, and in 1790, he was appointed as the first customs collector at Newport by uh, President George Washington. He served in that capacity until his death on February 15, 1820. So he was a very, very important guy in, 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 in uh, Newport, and he's very well loved there. Throughout his lifetime, he was renowned as a prodigious and a conscientious re reader. This is his library, which, uh, well, what uh, currently remains of it, I'm sure it was much larger um, originally. And this is at the Newport Historical Society. We are a small nonprofit with a big mission devoted <coughs> to devoted to public history, and it and that's where I work. NHS possesses an extensive collection of the family's papers, books, and artifacts. The 31 books of the, of the Ellery Library most likely pass through three generations of the family. Many volumes are, uh, ma many volumes are inscribed by both William and his son George, and at least one volume's bookplate notes that it had been given to the society by Henrietta Chan Channing, who was William's granddaughter via George I. Ma many of the volumes contain mar mar contain mar uh, mar 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 marginalia that provide a window into the thoughts of their readers. NHS's Ellery family manuscripts and artifacts allow us to place the library in context and to build narratives that give interpretive depth and meaning to the volumes. The, the uh, personal letters provide valuable insight into family relationships and the importance placed on reading in particular. At the same time, Ellery family artifacts help us to imagine the family's reading life in three dimensions. His mahogany desk which came to the Newport Historical Society with a pair of handmade eyeglasses tucked carefully into one of its drawers. They most likely belonged to uh, Will Will William himself and a Chippendale wingback armchair embroidered by his wife Abigail are just a couple of pieces from the uh, collection. 
In 2007, NHS displayed, displayed a number of items from this multifaceted collection in an exhibit entitled An Indomitable Spirit, The Life and Legacy of Will, 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 William Ellery Newport Signer of the Declaration of, in, of, in, of Independence. It featured seven volumes from Ellery's library, including the works of Virgil, Volume 2, Horace's Delphini, and Cicero's Select Orations. These were shown alongside a manuscript titled Diversions of 92, which was Ellery's handwritten translations from Latin texts made at the age of 92 in the same month that he died. According to his grandson, George Channing, Ellery spent the few hours before his death reading Cicero. The 2007 exhibit uses these examples from his library, contextualized by the manuscripts and the family lore, to highlight the value of the value of classical literature to Ellery in the final moments of his life. Drawing from his library in this way adds a deeply and poignantly personal dimension to his biography. So there is real value in taking books and really contextualizing them in this manner. So Gabby is going to present another, uh, um, another example drawn from the uh, collection of a narrative that really connects the books to their readers' lives and the historical context of their time. All right, so let's return to Ellery's set of Blackstone's commentaries. At the time Robert Bell began advertising his subscription scheme, Ellery had just begun practicing law, having spent the previous two decades as a merchant. Blackstone's commentaries, first printed out of Oxford in 1765, about the time Ellery made his midlife career change, was considered the definitive text of English common law. It was immensely popular, particularly and unsurprisingly, among lawyers. Prior to Bell's first American edition of the work, readers in the British North American colonies either had to acquire copies of the bestseller on their own or through family and friends in England, through London agents, or at their local booksellers. Ellery likely first saw Bell's advertisement soliciting subscriptions for this publication in the Newport Mercury. Perhaps he was pulled in by the nativist appeal, a major selling point for Bell, who wanted potential customers to know that it was printed on uh, quote, American paper and neat law binding, and you can see on the title page it says America proudly. Uh, so not only was it an essential work for any lawyer who would want that on their own bookshelf, but it was also an American-made product in the era where non-importation for the sake of political statement was all the rage. The set cost Ellery $8 and perhaps another two for delivery, but he very well may have had his Philadelphia snowbird friend William Redwood retrieve it for him. Regardless, by January 1774, Ellery had received his subscription copies, inscribing and dating each volume individually. But how did they fit into his life? Um, so using NHS's collection, we've assembled this kind of vignette uh, that can be interpreted in a number of ways. In it, we might see Ellery with his black stones at his desk, accompanied by Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws over here, another classic. Uh, to a new client approaching Ellery in his office during the day, it would be reassuring to see the man with the latest and most popular legal authority close at hand for reference. 
but perhaps it was in waiting for a client who was running a tad late for an appointment that he absentmindedly added a W here next to the E for his own initials, and he does this on the next page and the following page after that, further imprinting his ownership onto the book. Or two years later, we encounter Ellery preparing to set out for Philadelphia in late March 1776 as Rhode Island's newly elected delegate to the Continental Congress. Perhaps that's why oh, he uh, bookmarked this chapter with a broadside fragment, it's called, of the country's subject to the laws of England. His wick trimmers are close at hand, too, in case the hour grows late and he needs to ready the wick so that he can keep reading into the night because he simply must finish a chapter so gripping as courts of a criminal jurisdiction. I know, great reading for nighttime. Uh, glasses perched on the bridge of his nose as he leans toward the candle's warm glow. This might even be the last night that he spends at his home in Newport before he flees on horseback with his family and at least 22 books, including these Blackstones in tow. While we cannot date all of the marginalia for certain, the substance of what it suggests is that Ellery frequently referred back to these books beyond the mid-1770s, as we can see here, where he's remarking on the insanity of a king, likely from the 19th century when rumors of George's madness swirled, or in another example found in Spirit of the Laws, where he questions Napoleon's continental conquests. Uh, for the sake of time, we're going to skip over our next vignette. Um, and... Uh, in conclusion, and as we've hoped to demonstrate here, books have stories to tell beyond the words inked onto their pages centuries ago by printers. By looking more closely at their past lives and how they were woven into the lives of their readers and owners, we can tell a richer, fuller, and materially centered story that brings the historical <coughs> experience of book ownership and reading to life. We can draw audiences in to explore those stories when we physically and or digitally juxtapose books with the letters, artifacts, and other ephemera of their owners, reassembling the stage upon which past readers encountered the printed word, be it for the first time or the 20th. By placing Ellery's library within this broader context, each extant volume takes on a richer, deeper meaning, and the collection becomes a tool with which to engage a wider audience beyond that solitary researcher in the archive. It isn't simply enough to fill shelves for display with aesthetically old books. We must, can, and should go further to understand the book in its own time, in the lives of its individual readers, if we hope at all to convince the public of their value. Thank you. Our uh, spe uh, second speaker is David Brewer. David is an associate professor of English at the Ohio State University. He's recently been involved in two collaborative projects in the history of the book, Interacting with Print, Elements of Reading in the Era of Print Saturation, a multigraph as opposed to an uh, monograph, uh, forthcoming later this year from Chicago Press, and the book in Britain, a historical introduction which should, but, uh, should be out next year from Blackwell. He's currently completing two other projects, an edition of two of Penelope Arbin's uh, over-the-top romances from the 1720s, and a book tentative, uh, tentatively titled The Fate of Authors, on the uses which authorial names and images were put in the 18th century Anglophone world. His talk today is lurking in the vicinity of the latter. Please welcome David.
So, <clears throat> thank you to Stephanie for organizing this, and I'm delighted that there's a Winter Terror connection. I grew up in Wilmington and uh, spent a inordinate amount of time uh, of my misspent youth, uh, misspending it at Winter <clears throat> So, some of the circles I travel in would insist that it's impossible to really develop a period eye that a commitment to history and historicizing is a commitment to the radical alterity and ultimate unknowability of the past. Strictly speaking, I suppose they're right, but I'm not particularly troubled by this, because I don't think we need to perfectly inhabit the eyes and minds of viewers of the past in order to have some sense of how and what they saw. We simply need to have a good enough grasp of a uh, in order to make better sense of the objects and practices of the past than we would be able to devise on our own using exclusively contemporary tools and concepts. That is, what we need in historical reconstruction, as in parenting, is not the perfect, but simply what Winnicott calls the good enough. And as in parenting, if we can avoid the obvious mistakes of our predecessors and make some improvements of our own, our progeny will probably end up okay. Going for the good enough may not be much of a rallying cry, but I want to suggest that, like Ann Button Orr in Schoolhouse Rock, they'll get you pretty far. So how do we go about being good enough? In my experience, one of the most profitable ways to proceed is to bracket the formal theory, you know, treatises of aesthetics and philosophy and theology and such of the period who we're working on, and instead try to tease out the vernacular theory, uh, implicit and recurrent metaphors. By vernacular theory, I mean an only half-articulated and unsystematic, but nonetheless coherent way of doing things, in this way, way of thinking about objects and their use, that starts to come into view when we examine enough objects and accounts of objects for patterns to emerge. The analogy here, such as it is, is with vernacular architecture. The porches of early 19th century houses in the U.S. South are not, to my knowledge, in line with prescriptions of any of the respectable architectural treatises of the time but they're hardly random. If you examine uh, dozens or hundreds or thousands of such porches, a logic emerges, as does an, a set of underlying presumptions, structures, and proclivities. Those porches may not always be completely consistent in their workings. These presumptions and proclivities may not be able to wholly be able to, may not be able to be wholly put into words by any of their practitioners, but they nonetheless make sense. And typically, I think they explain a great deal. Similarly, I'm suggesting, that if you cast your net broadly and start noticing, say, the comparisons between seemingly unlike things that repeatedly crop up when people in the period discuss or describe them, you can go places where the more systematic accounts produced at the time uh, cannot take you. In some ways, of course, this is simply another version of the injunction we've been hearing for decades to focus on where we don't get the joke. I first encountered this in Robert, advice in Robert Darton's The Great Cat Massacre, but I suspect it was an anthropological truism even then. In the version I'm proposing, we should go where we don't get the metaphor, or even better, where we don't get the utility of the metaphor, i.e. where we can understand the comparison, but it seems trite or overstretched or not nearly as apt as a more obvious comparison would be. It's impressing on and dwelling in those moments where the metaphor seems pointless or bizarre or missing something important that we can often reconnect, however weakly or provisionally, what once seemed joined but has been put asunder in the intervening centuries. So how does this translate into practice? How would reconstructing the vernacular theory implicit in an object and its use help us to develop a period eye? 
I'd like to take the remainder of my time to consider at least some aspects of the vernacular theory that I think can be teased out of a metaphor that almost anyone who has worked with late 17th or early 18th century books in English has probably encountered, but that, so far as I can tell, has rarely been considered in any public way. I'm interested in the recurrent comparison between books and coins and the related comparisons that come in their wake, such as, uh, come in its wake, such as between authors and monarchs as the guarantors of value for their respective sorts of objects. Let's briefly consider a few examples, and I'm going to have to ask you to take it on faith that they're an at least roughly representative sample from a much larger archive. I've been running into these for upwards of a decade. Um, <clears throat> in the epistle dedicatory to a 1691 tragedy, Distressed Innocence, Elkanah Settle laments how poetry in this age holds its value not from the sterling but the stamp. A celebrated Minion writer shall be able to pass even Irish coin current when a hated scribbler under pique and prejudice shall hardly bring bullion and plate into play. The following year, the Gentleman's Journal echoed this comparison when describing the power of theatrical tastemakers. Once the indulgence... Uh, uh, say, once the indulgent rulers of the pit have stamped an author's piece and the would-be wits and coarse cried it up, it passes current with the rest of the world and whatever ally it may have, ally is an old term for alloy, uh, it may have he, its author, no more fears it's being cried down than if it was a standard as old gold. And in 1740, John Lockman trots it out yet again in an epigram on a modest bookseller's study up by way of sign of the head of a famous English poet. Edmund Curl had taken to using Alexander Pope's head as his shop sign. Curse Curl, besieged by duns to raise the cash, with Pope's immortal busto stamps his trash, so squandering coiners to retrieve a loss, imprint the monarch's image on their dross. Unless we miss the reference, there's a note to the line on stamping trash alluding to the customer printing signs and title pages. And you probably, if you look at 18th century English books, you've probably seen this as well, that there'll be Addison's head or Cooley's head or something like that uh, on the uh, foot of the title page. Um, these three invocations of uh, the metaphor, oh, and here's Pope's head, um, uh, these three invocations of the metaphor are all certain that the value of a coin stems not from the supposed intrinsic worth of the metal, but from the image of the monarch that guarantees it. That is, they're imagining coins as fiat money rather than commodity money. And they're equally certain that literature is best thought about in numismatic terms, as are its authors. Books are like coins. Authors are like the figures that appear on coins. So what does any of this to do with a period, uh, developing a period I? Quite simply, I, I propose that we would do well to take these metaphors seriously, to presume that they're not mere metaphors, but rather a shorthand for a way of thinking, which, given the materials we're considering, is also a way of reading and a way of seeing. To try to drive this home, I'd like to close by thinking about a print from 1731, or rather, thinking about how this print is thinking. Print in question is a medley print, a demonstration of engraving virtuosity through a trompe l'oeil depiction of pieces of printed paper and occasionally other objects overlapping one another. On top, of course, is a portrait of Mr. Alexander Pope. But this is first and foremost Pope the poet, not Pope the man, because elsewhere in the spread out stack are excerpts from Windsor Forest and The Rape of the Lock and an encomium on Mr. Pope and his poems by His Grace the late Duke of Buckingham. The latter is ostensibly concerned with Pope as a person, he's a good companion and as firm a friend, but nonetheless spends the majority of its lines on his verse, which 
poets are bound a loud applause to pay, Apollo bids it, and they must obey. What interests me, though, is the prince's insistence on the printed paperness of it all. Pope and his work are here printed pieces of paper represented through a printed piece of paper. That is, unlike other trompe l'oeil images, there's no disparity between the objects depicted and the object doing the depicting. All is ink, all is paper. Except, of course, for the only other portrait of an actual person in, uh, with, 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 uh, only other portrait of an actual person within the frame, the coin. Now, as we've seen, coins were thought of as akin to books. They're both objects whose value is determined first and foremost by the name and visage with which they're stamped. The coin supposedly contains a certain quantity of silver at a specified level of purity, but it's Queen Anne's name and head that underwrites, underwrites its worth and acceptance. Similarly, I'm proposing it's Pope's name and head that assures potential readers that the verse they're encountering is sterling. In effect, the objects depicted in the print are suffused with the value and authority of the offices and reputations of the beings whose names and portraits they bear. Yet the objects depicted remain objects, pieces of paper and a coin, capable of being moved about, reshuffled, folded, spindled, even mutilated. What would happen, for example, if the <coughs> excerpt from The Rape of the Lock were to be slid further under, beneath the portrait of Pope to make its, I'm sorry, here's The Rape of the Lock, to make its verbal sketch of a fop into a kind of caption to the portrait? What would happen if the coin were placed atop the excerpt from Windsor, Windsor Forest and both were laid across the portrait of Pope so as to obscure his name, thereby making the relation between the poem and its central figure, Queen Anne, one that is not nearly as obviously mediated by Pope? Medley Prince, and Mark Hallett has written really elegantly about this, Im invite the imagining of this sort of shuffling and reshuffling of their various layers of paper. And here, a significant part of what has been shuffled and reshuffled are the texts and proper name that collectively constitute Pope. But it's Pope the reputation that's being uh, objectified and reshuffled here, not Pope the man. It's Pope the reputation that's being presented to us as printed paper, potentially subject to all the indignities and repurposing that paper can suffer, not least among them, of course, becoming what Dryden famously termed a relic of the bum. In short, what this print and its invocation of the by then standard metaphor of a likeness between books and coins allows us to see is the curiously inhuman kind of personhood being accorded to both mon authors and monarchs. Both are, in important ways, images stamped onto a material support in order to serve as guarantors of a certain for a particular level or quantum of value, the real laureate, one shilling, whatever. Both are, in important ways, beings of tremendous charisma and authority <clears throat> who are nonetheless vulnerable to all sorts of manipulation by other hands. It might be more of a crime to clip the edges of your sovereign than to clip the edges of your poet, but I think the analogy holds. Both authors and monarchs are hopelessly entangled with the objects, objects through which the vast majority of their subjects encounter them, and by virtue of that entanglement, have a, a sort of quasi-objecthood that puts them quite literally at the fingertips of, and capable of being pushed about by, those who are theoretically their inferiors. This is hardly the only way in which authors and monarchs were regarded in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, but it crops up frequently enough, and in enough different places, to suggest that many found it a useful and compelling way to think about such beings. Indeed, I think it helps explain some of the, many of the most intriguing aspects of authorship in the period. 
better than many of our standard stories about intellectual property. But you'd never know it if you confined yourself to reading systematic treatises of literary or political theory from the period. It's only by taking seriously the metaphors that passingly recur often enough diverge on cliché that we can begin to reconstruct the vernacular theory through which most of the relevant population, in this case the denizens of literary culture, felt and thought, and most importantly for our purposes today, saw. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, our third speaker is Brad Eden. He's the Dean of Library Services at, Val at Valparaiso University. He has master's and PhD degrees in musicology, <coughs> as well as an MS in library science. His recent books include Middle Earth Minstrel, Essays on Music in Tolkien, uh, Folk, uh, Macfarlane 2010, The Associate University Librarian Handbook from Scarecrow Press 2012, Leadership in Academic Libraries from Scarecrow Press 2014, and the 10-volume series Creating the 21st Century Academic Library from 2015 to 2017. He served as president of the Library Publishing Coalition, and he's the editor of the Journal of Tolkien Research. Please welcome Brad. Many of you are familiar with the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, who lived from 1892 to 1973. His most famous book, The Lord of the Rings, which was published in three installments in 1954 through 55, was surpassed only by the Bible in the number of sales in the 20th century. The Peter Jackson movie series, based on the book, along with the recent Hobbit movie series, have brought an entirely new generation of readers and fans interested in Tolkien's mythology. For those of us who have researched and delved into what is known as the Legendarium, the background and foundation of what is known as the Fourth Age of Middle-earth, where the action of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings takes place, is but a small piece of Tolkien's vast 60,000-plus years of the history of Arda. The First, Second, and Third Ages of Middle-earth were the life work of Tolkien, started in the trenches at the Battle of the Somme in 1916 and under constant revision until his death in 1973. Within the course of various scholarship endeavors related to my interest and research on J.R.R. Tolkien and his mythology, opportunities arose to examine the life of Tolkien's second son, Michael, who lived from 1920 to 1984. Very little about Michael's personal life is known, except for those special instances related to his father's mythology. For instance, they both shared a dream called the Atlantis dream of a huge wave coming and wiping them out. Uh, Tom Bombadil was based on a doll that Michael had when he was a small boy. And the Roverandum story as well is based on a small dog that was lost on a beach in England uh, as well, which is a story about a dog that goes to the moon. His personal life, his character, even the details related to his military accident in 1940 have not been detailed or explored. Pictures of Michael both as a child and as an adult are few and far between. While the role of Tolkien's other three children in their father's estate is well known, Michael has remained something of an enigma. It is obvious in his father's published correspondence that he had a very deep, abiding relationship with Michael, and yet Michael was able to maintain a somewhat private and almost hidden life despite the popularity and the success of his father. My interest in Michael began with the purchase of a few books from his library via eBay approximately 15 years ago. Michael was very meticulous in recording his name, usually in two colors, red and black, his location at that time, 
the date, usually fully written out, for example, July 29, 1950, and on many occasions the event, Christmas, the Feast of St. Athanasius, the Feast of, uh, of St. Athanasius, sorry, I can't even pronounce it. Uh, sometimes a nameplate contains this information, sometimes not. If the book was a gift, this is recorded as well. Every book in his library has this. The craftsmanship of the owner's information in each book, along with the notes that many of them contain, reveal a depth of intensity and an insight into the mind of the owner of the books that is indeed rare. As a result, I have been slowly obtaining books from Michael's library as they have become available, such that over 200 books from a library of approximately 1,000 have been identified thus far. While it is known that Michael taught classics in various languages at a number of schools in the United Kingdom, the exact dates of his tenure at those schools have been difficult to determine in the past. Examination of the dates and locations indicated within the books in his library has helped to focus my research and begin to piece together Michael's life journey on a much more intimate level. As indicated by the title of this presentation, I want to discuss how Michael's books and library provide a snapshot of mid-20th century British politics and culture. Michael's biography indicates that he served as a machine gunner in World War II and was intimately involved in British intelligence. In fact, a lecture by his brother indicates that he probably served in the Secret Service Force that protected Prime Minister Churchill. He also sustained lifelong injuries from a military accident in 1940, which appeared to have affected his opinions and choice of authors in his library. Many of the books in Michael's library deal with current topics related to British politics, society, and education. And the 20th century authors which he chose to purchase also had various opinions related to race, society, and war in the British Empire. Of the approximately 200 books from his library that have been identified thus far, Michael's favorite authors appear to be Hilaire Belloc, a prominent British Catholic of the early 20th century. He had 13 books of Belloc's, and many of these books were presented to Michael by his father on his birthdays. And I think this also shows J.R. Tolkien's predilection for Belloc as well. He had eight books by Charles Dickens. He had seven books by Arnold Lunn, who was a prominent Catholic convert who became a well-known Catholic apologist. And then he had four books by A.J. Cronin. Books by French authors, especially Balzac, were numerous in Michael's library due to his teaching and language duties at various schools during his lifetime. I'm going to comment on two of the many books that Michael wrote extensive comments in. The first is Statecraft, a treatise on the concerns of our sovereign lord the king, from uh, William Sanderson, which was published in 1932. This was obtained by Michael on April 26, 1954. The book invites consideration of the foundation and origins and objects of English politics. It is divided into three parts, the English mystery, the lost secrets of statecraft, and the index of anarchy. Chapters include the secret of memory, the secret of race, the secret of power, the secret of property, the secret of money, the secret of religion, the secret of majesty, the ethics of rebellion, bias, and social reform, and the moneyed interests. Michael obviously read the introduction in chapter one. For example, on page eight of chapter one, uh, the purpose of politics, the content reads, quote, it is by consistency of breed that the accumulated subconscious memories can be preserved in the instincts. Crossbreeding may sometimes be successfully introduced where development has taken place on exactly similar lines in similar environments. Thus the Norman cross with English stocks of clearly related Nordic breeds could be successful. 
On the other hand, the interbreeding of Nordic and Welsh stocks must have caused deterioration of characteristic qualities on both sides, unquote. So Michael comments in the margins of this, quote, a successful instance of crossbreeding, and in parens, which may ne be necessary to prevent eventual sterility. And here he quotes from V. Dudovici's Defense of Aristocracy, which is uh, a book written in 1915 and called A Textbook for Tories, which he obviously knew and had read. So this book, just to let you know, defends aristocracy against government and popular control, and it is also a book on heredity breeding, and it was strongly opposed to Jewish to Jews. So this kind of gives you a background of what was going on in English society after World War II. The second book is Lest We Regret by Douglas Reed, which was published in 1943. It was obtained by Michael on Easter 1964. The author wanted to title this Battle in England for what had happened from 1919 to 1939, but the publisher chose the title so as not to confuse the reader. The author, instead of replying to extensive correspondence from his previous books, wrote this book to address concerns from his 1938 Insanity Fair book and the three books that followed that, which discussed the coming war, that is World War II. It takes the reader through the 20 years, showing the English proclivity to misgovern and how youth must step forward to avoid the same mistakes by the same government again. Michael has written extensive comments in this book. He underlines uh, specifically in pencil, and he puts comments in the margin in red, in red pen. Michael strongly agrees with the authors in many areas, and he disagrees in some. For example, on page 92, the text reads, quote, The further you probe into these things, the more clearly you find that power today is wielded by men who lurk in shadow, whose instruments the politicians merely are, those public figures which you acclaim today and curse tomorrow, call these men collectively anon. You may believe that a god exists in heaven, then why not a demon on earth called Anon? Unquote. Michael's comments in the margins, this is the most important political fact of our time and the most skillfully obscured. Another example is on page 100. The text reads, quote, Lord Vansittart, who was permanent head of the foreign office for five years after Hitler came to power, who understood the German situation perfectly, and then goes on. Michael writes at the bottom of the page, quote, come off it. Van Sittart was a self-religious prig with a one-track mind. I had to suffer his lectures at Sondhurst in 1941." So to conclude, without a doubt, I could not have imagined that the purchase of a few books from the library of Michael H. R. Tolkien in the early 2000s would have led to such an adventure, which is still ongoing, and the wealth of information on his life and character that was discovered. The library of Michael H. R. Tolkien provides a fascinating case study of an individual in a time period that no longer exists, one in which reading and recording in one's book collection, one's thoughts and comments was standard practice. Michael's neat and legible handwriting make this analysis possible. Thank you. Thank you. So our next speaker is Alea Henle. Um, she's the head of public service librarian at Western New Mexico University. She holds an MLS from Simons College and a PhD in history from the University of Connecticut. She has published on electronic resources, usage statistics, and library and archival history. Her research interests include how efforts to collect materials and make them available for historical research and research practices shape the result of our research. Her uh, paper today, Books and Their History, 
source survival in historical scholarship. We'll address this topic. Thank you. And if those at the back cannot hear me wave and they'll try to speak louder, because um, I know sometimes the air conditioning of it, stuff like that can play around. When the New York Historical Society received the papers of Revolutionary General Horatio Gates in 1816, society officers reviewed the documents and arranged for the materials they considered of interest to be bound up in volumes, a standard practice at the time. The remaining papers were tied up in string and marked as private and unimportant. Thirty years later, while preparing a catalog of the New York Historical Society holdings in 1847, the librarians rediscovered the tied-up bundle and decided many of the papers were worth adding to the bound series enough to fill three volumes. Other items were repackaged as still unimportant or private. My guess is the documents which remained private after 1847 included his correspondence with his first and second wives and his financial records. This is a guess because the sorting, arranging, and binding of the documents on receipt or in 1847 appears nowhere in the collection finding aid or the printed guide to the microform collection. The only processing note refers to the 1975 microfilming project, which also fails to mention the review and resorting 1847 or at what date the materials were reprocessed under modern archival principles. All too often, scholars plumb sources for content and overlook the conditions through which sources were preserved for use. There are, of course, exceptions, and I'm sure this room is full of the exceptions, you know, scholars of material culture and the history of the book. But all too often, that also highlights the creation and preservation of particular items. For instance, through the focusing on the provenance or ownership history of individual items and not necessarily looking at it at a more collective level. So I would say we need to develop period eyes which take into account not only the times which we study, but also the intervening decades and centuries in as much as they touch the materials we use. For all sources, central and peripheral, large and small, complex and simple, primary and secondary, have histories. When we overlook these histories or focus only upon the ownership of particular books and lament how few have detailed provenance, we run the risk of reinscribing centuries of power inequities in our work. Over 20 years ago, anthropologist Michel Rolf Trigot pointed out that unequal power results in unequal historical power. A growing body of literature point documents how power has and continues to shape and reshape the historical record. Over the past centuries, the very people interested in preserving materials for the writing of history, archivists, librarians, museum curators, collectors, and historians, have embraced practices which affected what sources survive for access. Likewise, digital developments over the past, combined with unequal access to resources and idiosyncratic research practices to affect scholars' exposure to various bodies of primary and secondary materials. Selections of what to collect and preserve were made over the years based on race, class, gender, power, and evolving ideas of what was history. Format alone was often key in determining survival. Most books have received far more attention in collecting activity than ephemera, 
as this audience in particular is aware, successive owners could do all manner of things other than read, not least bind, rebind, rearrange, disband, bind, sell in part or whole, excise passages or pages, and more. Smaller items, whether manuscript or print, had the greatest odds of being rearranged in some method or other. The archival principle of original order, i.e. keeping materials insofar as possible as they were originally arranged, dates only to the 19th century and it has been inconsistently applied over the decades. Indeed, it was first advocated highly in the United States early in the 20th century and still was inconsistently applied into the late 20th century. Most historical databases and digital history projects providing access to primary sources focus attention on sources' contents and facilitate users overlooking how the project's design, selection, and implementation, along with users' interactions and searching practices, impact search results. We're still in exploratory stages in the digital world. While standards are being developed, there are so many decisions and issues at play, not to mention regular invention of new approaches and software. The digital, digital projects take different forms and treat sources in divergent ways. Just for example, compare Chronicling America and America's Historical Newspapers, or Google Books, Hathi Trust, the Internet Archive, Ebo, and Digital Evans Shaw Shoemaker, all in many cases dealing with very similar materials, but with very different approaches. Discovery depends in no small part on access to resource, either in person or through databases and digital resources, and I've been known to drive two hours to NMSU so that I can access some of those databases. But it's also important to recognize the impact of research skills and preferences. A recent Ithaca report on historians' research practices described them as idiosyncratic, and I think any librarian could have said, I could have told you that. Scholars have to begin to explore this matter and develop tools for resolution, but this is a slow process, and in some cases not necessarily a funded process either, if any of you are familiar with Beyond the Citation, which appears to be a fairly brief-lived attempt to try and start documenting some of the preferences behind many of the databases. Not thinking about how and why we have any particular set of sources increases the risk of reinscribing assumptions, presences, and absences into the historical record. I argue we need to consider all sources, primary and secondary, as having multiple histories. These histories are not restricted to provenance or ownership history of individual items. They have histories in as much as they partake in the history of any group into which they can be categorized, and thus any group into which we could conceivably try and start piecing out what forces helped ensure their survival or affected their destruction. Scholars do not need to be all things to all people, but at least consider how analysis of sources and their histories in ways which relate to your subject and or argument might contribute to your work. Archaeologists have an approach termed deposition, wherein they consider not only a given item, but the context or layers of other materials and earth within which it was discovered. So from a digital standpoint, consider which databases and archival and special library collections, if any, provided a majority of your sources. What might that say about whatever subject you're researching? Sources, primary and secondary, are the raw material which feeds historical scholarship. How they were preserved and made it accessible, and how we discover them matters because in the end, we are what we eat. Our fifth uh, speaker is Eric Rosenberg. Eric is the director of the Grolier Club in New York City. 
He's the author of the Middle Hill Press uh, from 1997, and he has taught a version of the history of the book in the West since 1800, a rare book school since 2001. He has also taught courses on the rare book cataloging and rare book and on rare book cataloging and rare book librarianship. His paper today is titled "The Aesthetic Movement in Print and Beyond." Please welcome Eric. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Catherine. Um, so yes, uh, I admit it now for something, uh, if not completely different, um, just a little bit different. Yes, uh, I admit I am a collector, uh, or I'm here talking to you as, uh, at least partially, as a collector of the aesthetic movement. You can tell by that, that by the William Morris tie. <laughs> um, and I'm a, I'm a collector, but I am also a, uh, a bibliographer and a rare book librarian and someone with a certain training in history. Um, so specifically, I collect the aesthetic movement, and this was a, uh, a fairly short-lived but um, extraordinarily popular decorative arts movement that thrived in, the, in England uh, and in the U.S. and in some countries, but not others, of Europe between about 1865 and um, 1890. Now, because I collect uh, books and printed ephemera relating to aestheticism as well as representative objects, um, I've been able to make um, certain connections, some of them I think are fairly interesting, between print media and other aspects of material culture, and so develop um, I, I dare say, a rather broader and more discerning period eye than if I had focused more narrowly on the books or more narrowly on the tchotchkes. Um, so using images um, from my um, own collection, um, I'd like to run briefly through the ways in which books um, and printing can intersect uh, with objects uh, to broaden and enrich our understanding, or at least my understanding, uh, of a particular movement uh, in the decorative arts. So this is a, a, in the nature of a case study. Um, the aesthetic movement was, among other things, a set of principles. Um, so, what it, so what does that intersection look like? What does that conversation between books and objects uh, look like, at least in the context of my own collection? Um, because the aesthetic movement was uh, a set of principles concerning art and artists, um, it seems to me that any comprehensive collection uh, concerning the movement has got to start with the treatises and thought pieces uh, setting out those principles. So writers like uh, Théophile Gautier in France and uh, Walter Pater in England in the 1830s and 1840s were the first to challenge, in the 19th century anyway, the then universally held opinion um, put forward by figures like Pugin and Ruskin, among others, that art must have a strong moral or educational purpose. Uh, Gautier and Pater, and later in the 1860s and 1870s, Oscar Wilde, Whistler, and others, utterly rejected that uh, very kind of pragmatic and utilitarian notion. Uh, they argued, on the contrary, that art's only purpose was to give pleasure, uh, and that to create art <coughs> or live surrounded by art was uh, man's highest. Uh, these are representative uh, examples of Pugin on the left and Ruskin on the right. Um, to create art or live surrounded by art was man's highest aim in life. Now, this is a sort of a revolutionary idea for its time and even a bit subversive, 
Um, but it represents the very basis uh, for much of our modern attitude toward arts, uh, toward art and artists. Um, so, although outwardly uh, quite an elitist philosophy, um, aestheticism was, in practice, an art movement that was tailor-made for the rising 19th century European middle class. Um, if art existed only to give pleasure, uh, then almost anything could be art, um, and almost anyone could be an artist or indulge artistic sensibilities. Furthermore, art could be owned, art could be manufactured. Um, aesthetes, by the way, did not care as much about craftsmanship. Those, that's these tiresome arts and crafts people, by the way. Um, uh, aesthetes uh, thought that a beautiful piece of mass-produced china was worth as much or more than an ugly painting. Um, it was the design that mattered, not the, not the, uh, the circumstances of, uh, of creation. And finally, uh, aesthetes considered that you could be arti considered artistic by virtue of uh, your own artistic possessions. So um, uh, you could acquire uh, art in that way. You could go out and buy it. From this philosophy sprang a flood, a literal flood, of books and periodicals telling the would-be artistic public um, how to do aestheticism, how to be artistic. Um, many of these were written by and for uh, women. Um, for the first time, not only the chief audience for these aspirational guidebooks, but also, on balance, their chief producers. Um, so uh, the aesthetic movement was, um, this is a, uh, a handbook on how to paint China, and uh, perfectly um, by accident, I happened to come across a piece of china on eBay that somehow looked familiar, so I bought it, and it turned out to be an example produced by uh, an amateur china painter, uh, according to one of the, uh, the, the, the things in the book. Um, so um, the aesthetic movement was a set of theoretical uh, principles, but it was also a practical and quite specific uh, approach uh, to ornament. Uh, the design vocabulary of um, aestheticism drew from two primary sources. I'm going to skip ahead here. Um, uh, first of all, the art of Japan, uh, which had recently been opened in the West uh, in the 1860s after centuries of isolation. Um, and uh, the revived art of uh, the Middle Ages and the early uh, Renaissance. Now, these seemingly disparate ornament systems actually had much in common. Um, highly stylized uh, motifs, um, uh, uh, often of birds or flowers or, or animals, broad areas of solid color, heavy outlining, um, uh, asymmetry, uh, and flat perspective, a characteristic of um, Japanese prints, uh, early Western woodcuts, Gothic textile and mural decorations, and the paintings of the early Italian Renaissance, beloved of the Pre-Raphaelites. Uh, the rise of the aesthetic movement uh, corresponded uh, with the development of new and improved color printing techniques like chromolithography and color woodblock printing 
to produce um, lavish color plate books on exotic ornament systems past and present and for the first time offer uh, um, really a smorgasbord of design ideas in truly accurate uh, line and color. You have to contrast this with previous generations, previous centuries of books on the decorative arts. Uh, pattern books have been produced since the incunable period, but up until about the 1850s, um, these were very, very expensive printed books uh, to produce. Uh, they were generally, if illustrated, they were illustrated with woodcuts or with um, uh, copper plate engraving. And if you wanted them in color, that was hand coloring and even more expensive and more difficult to produce. It's only with the rise of uh, lithography, particularly chromolithography in the 1850s and 1860s, that you for the first time get books at a reasonable price uh, that um, can sort of transmit uh, these, transmit these, these, these principles. So these books are expensive, but they're not outrageously so, uh, and they are heavily mined by, um, and I'm talking about these kinds of pattern books, um, particularly uh, the books, um, uh, many, many, many of them produced in the 1860s and 1870s and 1880s about the arts of Japan, about the arts of the Middle East. Uh, these are ornament systems largely unknown in the West before this time, and uh, they inspire uh, hugely uh, designers of the period like Christopher Dresser, uh, this is his uh, studies in uh, design. Uh, Frederick Holm, two books by him, Principles of Ornamental Art and Suggestions in Floral Design. And again, you can see, you know, this kind of approach to ornament, um, stylized, uh, sort of stiff, um, heavy on the floral elements and the and the and and the foliage. Uh, and yet with a kind of an admixture of uh, the medieval, particularly here in um, the lettering. Um, and, and so Holm and Dresser and people like um, uh, John Moore Smith, uh, they are developing their own grammar of aesthetic ornament uh, based on some of these other um, uh, color plate uh, pattern books. Uh, one such grammar of ornament is uh, this uh, periodical called The Art Worker. From, uh, it's a single volume uh, produced in 1879. Uh, and this is uh, very, very characteristic of uh, this in itself in these two plates constitutes almost a grammar of aesthetic ornament. Uh, the heron uh, as such an important figure, uh, the, uh, the, the, the potted plant, which is, uh, appears everywhere in aesthetic design, not only in books, but in furniture and on china and in textiles. Um, so, and all of these things were, um, uh, the, the purpose of all of these books, the pattern books and these grammars of ornament and these handbooks, um, were um, interned mind by manufacturers like um, Bradley and Hubbard uh, and uh, Minton uh, and Royal Worcester uh, to produce enormous quantities of, of, of artistic goods to meet an almost insatiable demand for art in the house uh, among the middle and upper classes. 
Um, to me, the interesting, one very as interesting aspect of history is not so much what got produced or what got done, but what, what on earth did people think they were doing? Um, and uh, there's something about this um, intersection in my own collection of objects and books that um, uh, you know, is gradually giving me a, a sense of, of, of what that is and how that goes. So um, we've talked about books as um, an agent of promotion of aesthetic principles and an aesthetic design vocabulary. But what about books as a manifestation of uh, aesthetic principles or, uh, uh, you know, or, or books really internalizing aspects of aesthetic design? And the answer is that that's a little more uh, fuzzy. It's a little more unsatisfactory. It doesn't go as far. And that has a lot to do with the nature of printing and what we use printing for. We're using printing to transmit information from generation to generation. You really can't monkey much with uh, basic um, uh, letter forms. Um, printers are extremely conservative in, in that way, therefore, and so is the reading public. If you monkey with uh, basic letter form shapes, uh, it, you, know, you don't sell books. Um, and so, but what you can do uh, in books and in job printing is to uh, focus on the display types, on the title pages, uh, on the um, lettering uh, used for, um, uh, for advertising. This is uh, an opening from a, a type <coughs> specimen of the Bruce Type Founding Company of, uh, I think it's 1880, 1882. Uh, and it shows some of the relatively few um, uh, display types. This one actually based on uh, some, you know, very ignorant idea of um, uh, an oriental letter style. Uh, and here, uh, type uh, ornaments arranged in sort of aesthetic uh, patterns. Uh, uh, the asymmetrical uh, arrangement, the, the diagonal slash, all of these are part of the vocabulary of the uh, aesthetic movement. Um, so you can see that the, uh, a lot of this lettering was uh, hand done, it wasn't uh, printed, um, but some of the artistic um, typography, artistic printing of the aesthetic movement is really quite something. Uh, very lively, um, uh, almost uh, sort of mind-bendingly so. Um, layout was another matter, and you can find aesthetic principles at work in um, a number of aesthetic era books um, in uh, asymmetrical um, arrangement of type on a title page. Now this doesn't look very foreign or very odd to us, but it was absolutely revolutionary in the context of uh, 1880s book printing um, uh, of the time. You just did not lay out a title page like this before 1880 or 1882. It just did not happen. The other thing you could do is play with ink colors uh, and paper colors. Uh, this is a guidebook on decorative painting from uh, 1884, I think, and it's printed on 
uh, sort of bluish paper and also on salmon paper. And the type, the ink is sort of a mauve color. Uh, all of these secondary and tertiary colors are also extremely characteristic of the, uh, of the aesthetic movement. So illustration in the aesthetic area, as in the decorative arts generally, was dominated by very new and exciting approaches to color, perspective, and outline uh, derived from Japanese and late medieval art. Uh, artists like uh, Walter Crane, uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, Howard Pyle, uh, Kate Greenaway, Eugène Grasset, uh, and others were ambassadors for this revolutionary new style. Children's books were an unexpected but extremely powerful vehicle uh, for aesthetic ideals. The writer Mark Jeward applauds them as subversive elements in the otherwise staid, plodding Victorian household, calling them secret persuaders, like little aesthetic bombs, he says. They scattered sweetness and light beyond the nursery into every corner of the house. And these are books that, and there are, there's a huge um, number of them, and they are basically windows into the interior decoration of the 1880s. The children are fascinated by wallpaper. They interact with blue and white china. They're in love with sunflowers. It's, uh, it's all very strange. Um, but publishers' trade bindings were the real vehicle, the ideal canvas for aesthetic design and bookmaking. And the close relationship of aesthetic era binding design elements to china and silver and um, other applied arts um, is immediate and, and obvious. So the goal of the aesthetes was to live a comprehensive artistic life, to make art, to read about art, to talk about art, and to surround oneself with art um, handmade, homemade, or manufactured made no difference as long as the design was good. The aesthetic movement, again, was not the first decorative arts movement to exhibit a symbiotic relationship with books, but it was arguably the first to do so with such phenomenal, almost explosive success, helped along by fortuitous advances in 19th century printing and illustration techniques that brought new ideas, new designs, new shapes and colors rapidly and relatively cheaply to a ravenous audience eager to learn about art for art's sake and prepared to pay for it. An enormous number of books, printed ephemera, prints, um, and other mass-produced uh, items manufactured according to aesthetic principles and or decorated with aesthetic motifs still survive, and they can be identified and brought together to approximate, if only imperfectly, the 19th century ideal of a unified, all-encompassing aesthetic existence. You just need to develop and exercise that period I. <laughs> Thank you. Pop right up, so <laughs> there's time for questions. Um, first, I'd like to thank Stephanie for inviting me to participate in this session, and to all the presenters for sharing their important and, I think, fascinating work with us. 
Um, reading the papers was a pleasure, and hearing these presentations and seeing more pictures of the aesthetic movement um, is always a pleasure. Um, after a week that for me has involved a broken down car and being stung by a swarm of bees, um, this opportunity to think about the importance and meaning of books is truly a joy. So for the next few minutes, I'll share some thoughts of my own on the presentations individually and collectively, post some questions, and then open up the table for group discussion and comments. So each project engages in interesting and important ways with the subject of the session, developing a period I. Considering leather-bound copies of law books, mouse-gnawed manuscript bundles, impassioned inscriptions of a famous author's son, impressed and impressive heads, and aesthetic-era beauties, each project moves beyond a view of the book as merely a vessel for text. Instead, a more holistic view of books and inscribed documents as objects, implicated in a constellation of material goods in specific places and times, emerges. As a professor in the Winter Tour Program for American Material Culture, I spend most of my days studying, interpreting, and teaching with objects, including books, that range from the profoundly anonymous to the overwhelmingly historicized. And every day, my discussions with students, colleagues, and visiting research fellows center on similar questions to those raised in these presentations today. How best can we understand objects as products of their own time, and how can we do so in an honest and ethical fashion? What are the limits of recapturing the experiences, expectations, interests, and skills of past makers and users? And why, in the long run, should we care if our stories are true? So Gabrielle and Molly convincingly argue that books from William Ellery's library gain greater meaning and importance placed in assemblages with other objects associated with this noted Newport, Rhode Island resident. Despite some silences in the archive and artifact record, context provided by easy chairs, desks, letters, and portraits help illuminate the texture of William Ellery's long life and the place of books within it. While I share the belief that these groupings can help uncover Ellery's interests, pursuits, and public identity, um, he shaped better than um, books alone, I also think there are questions about why and how books are saved and how these survivals shape Ellery's legacy are important. From these displays, a picture of Ellery as an avid reader, a sophisticated consumer, and a leader in colonial and early national life emerges. But in Ellery's case, I wonder how much of the story is enlivened, how much the story is enlivened by asking even more about the source of the inherited and earned income that facilitated this learned life. While Ellery became an avowed abolitionist later in life, his family and many of his associates, like so many in Newport, and I would say all of Rhode Island, were deeply entangled in slave-based economies. Ellery himself traded highly prized New England rum to Africa earlier on in his life. <coughs> And while Ellery's achievements are no less important with this additional information, recent scholarship and current events demand that we honestly illuminate the full past of people's lives and their objects, books included. I wonder then what books or other materials might be added to the assemblages to incorporate this part of Ellery's life, which I think only underscores his dual role as a very ordinary, and very extraordinary man of his time. And this may be actually something they've done because you know these papers have to be very short, but I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Doing so might get closer to the good enough interpretation of the past that David Brewer advocates. 
The concept of vernacular theory he presents as applied to Ellery might ask us to understand how he reconciled his life associated with Newport trade with his emerging role as an abolitionist and what it meant in terms of his choices for and use of his library. The underlying logic that emerges may be one that upheld systematic inequalities just as much as it was railing against them. For Brewer's own work, the focus turns to metaphors and connections between books and coins. I have to admit, I was very excited by the subject of this paper, as it provided me with an excuse to pull the work of one of my own favorite authors, John Evelyn, from our rare book stacks. I became enamored of Evelyn through Silva and his Aceteria, A Discourse on Salads. <laughs> so it's about vegetables uh, and other things. But have been intrigued by one of his other works, Numismata. Why did a man who wrote about trees and plants write a book on coins? In this book, Evelyn claims that metals, quote, well and judiciously, judicially chose have always been esteemed and that worthily, not only as ornament, but as but an useful and necessary appendage to a library. This suggestion by Evelyn and by Brewer is that the connections between coins and books have everything to do with how early modern literate people assessed value in a world increasingly saturated with knowledge based on printed works, books and newspapers, prints and the like, by authors they did not necessarily know. How can one trust an author and by extension the content of their writing if they did not know them? Rather than the face-to-face -face interactions of personal exchange, face-to-face -face interactions between readers and coins depicting rulers and leaders lent authority and gravity to the books that surrounded readers in libraries and schools and other places. While sitting in a library with a cabinet filled with little stamped heads may seem strange to us now, the sheer number of coin and medallion cases and their placement specifically in libraries strongly upholds Brewer's suggestion that we might do well to understand or at least gather an impression of unintended, this relationship. Um, Brad Eden returns us to a consideration of the reader with his work on the little-known son of um, Tolkien, Michael. Unlike the heads of kings and queens stamped on Brewer's coins, Michael is a figure that remained intentionally obscure, and he has thus been overlooked by readers and scholars. Despite close ties with his father, so little is recorded or known about Michael's life. Only through cross-mending the shards of his marginalia does a picture of a politically invested and opinionated individual emerge. I wonder if his father's life of fame drove him to a quieter life of books, or if the archive of books alone that we have only partially captures his biography. He certainly read his books and wrote in them, demonstrating a passion for the subject matter in reading, but like the politicians he wrote about, Michael seems to still be lurking in the shadows. What other sorts of comments did he make? Can assessment of his extant library say anything more about Michael as a person? Aaliyah poses important questions that ask us to consider whose stories we tell and to expand the understanding of whose history counts and what sources matter. If Michael Tolkien's books had not been dispersed, sold on the open market, and collected by a Tolkien scholar who we have here with us today, would we even know anything about him? Or would the record be silent? Aaliyah, like others here, asks important questions about how we preserve and create the historical record in both conscious and unconscious ways. Who determines what gets saved and collected? She also raises important points about digital databases that can serve broader communities of scholars, 
but can be equally limited in terms of access. Wealthier libraries can buy more databases, while less fortunate schools or libraries must forego these expensive research tools, or you may have to drive two hours to get to them. Even when they are accessible, um, Aaliyah demonstrates that poor keywords or tagging or metadata or other manuscript processing and cataloging practices can hurt rather than help researchers. In short, power structures do not check themselves at the doors of libraries. Scholars must, in turn, be vigilant in asking how an archive or a collection is formed. Understanding these obstacles and how they emerge is one project, but in turn, how can we as scholars appropriately mitigate these challenges? Power structures are apparent, too, in the gloriously illustrated aesthetic works discussed by Eric Holzenberg. While women emerge along men's, alongside men as major figures in promoting and consuming this style, their power is often limited within the narratives and visual strategies of these works. So some of the images we've seen here, women um, in them and in the, the contents of these books, women are encouraged to be the beautifiers within the aesthetic home, setting tables and lounging near mantles. Men are depicted, though, as the makers of this style, the industry journal that we saw, painting murals and sawing wood. Even as the aesthetic style combined decorative elements reflecting a global culture, the prescriptive literature and supporting imagery largely suggests that women must properly experience this world within her own home. Are there examples that subvert this reading, and how does that complicate our understanding of the aesthetic movement and its national and international dimensions? Overall, the authors agree that context matters for understanding books and the people who used, made, and collected them. Developing a period eye can enrich our scholarship and inspire even more robust questions of our sources. But the presenters differ somewhat on defining the limits of our seeing into the past. It is up to us as scholars to balance known facts with reasoned imagination to create more satisfying and intriguing interpretations. I also think, um, earlier session that I was at, there are real limits on how collections, even if we want to do this, can even talk to one another, even within the same institution. Our winter, the library collection is cataloged in a different database than the museum collections and the um, garden collections, so that is a problem. <laughs> but I have said enough, and I've seen the, <laughs> the minutes there. Um, I'd love to hear responses from the authors and any questions from the um, group for the authors um, that we've had such wonderful presentations from today. States. Um, I know that uh, 
the, uh, the French approach to Japonisme uh, is, um, it's, 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 uh, it's very strong, it's, it's fairly short-lived, um, uh, and um, I, I think there's a, lot to, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. A lot of it's been unpacked already for the United States and for, and, and for, um, uh, for the UK. Um, but I would actually love to talk with you about what you've discovered for, in terms of France. One interesting point I think to make is that uh, it's interesting uh, to contemplate the countries in which the aesthetic movement really had no um, influence. Um, um, Italy, um, Spain, um, uh, Germany, very little, I think. Um, and France of the continental countries is really, a, a, of the European continent, is, is, is really the only country that embraced it um, in any kind of way that was similar to the uh, United States and the UK. Forces and technological forces are at work that conduce to produce 
these these new technologies of printing that um, allow the spread of, of, of uh, aesthetic principles. Uh, what what economic forces are at work? You know, in, in, in a larger sense. I mean, you know, I think you can only in any of our projects or. Uh, you can you can only work with what's in in, in front of you. But then, as, as human beings do, you generalize from the smaller to the larger and the, and the more comprehensive. Um, and I think with most of the projects, I think that it's, it's, it's capable of doing that. But we only had ten minutes, so <laughs> I, I think those were the limitations in our original work. I do think with like marginalia, I mean, we feel as if we're like getting like the true person coming through. So you know, I don't know how that carries over to the printed ornaments on the sides, but like yeah. Thinking of marginalia with, with Tolkien's ten son and, and Ellery, um, you know, thinking of Ellery potentially doing his marginalia, thinking that given his prominence in in, in Rhode Island, like oh, someone someone's gonna, this is going to be for history, like right? <laughs> someone will be reading my marginalia uh, in years to come. Or I don't know with Tolkien's son. Let's see. <laughs> yeah. well, you, you know, I think of myself because I work the same way. My books are mine, and I, you, I'm writing them constantly. Um, you know, I'm sure some of you, you use technology and computers. I can't read on a computer. I don't like it. It doesn't have the same, you know, tactile response to me. And but I mean, when I purchase a book, I don't care how old it is or how rare it is. I'm going to write in it because if I'm going to read it, I want to. I don't want to have to go back and figure out what I already read. I want to put in there. You know those concepts, and so when I look at Michael's books, I'm getting here somebody who, who isn't saving for posterity. As he's reading, he's writing down his thoughts, very personalized to himself, to no one else. So you get a real in-depth look in my, in my case, of somebody's soul, and and their thoughts. But not only that, but you also get the thought processes of his family, and the surrounding area, which is not well known, but is starting to come to the fore now as we look at Tolkien's books in the broader context of the 20th century and British politics of the early 20th century. I was going to uh, jump on this and, and think about also the materiality of the writing itself. That does it give a sense, you know, uh, when I write in my Stephanie, own books, can you speak up? The, the oh, air handlers yeah. back there make it really <laughs> hard to hear in the so back. I was, I was thinking about calligraphy and the materiality and the gesture of writing and what it can indicate also of the uh, mood of the writer and we get a sense of that when we um, I'm thinking about the way I write in my book if I'm in a good mood or in a bad mood and if I, my handwriting is going to change and, and do, do we, can we get a sense of that from uh, a close acquaintance with uh, a reader through the marginalia I, I can tell you that in, in the political books that Michael owns, some of which were given to by his father, so there's interest here in the, in, in the subject matter. But also when uh, Michael also um, also received complimentary copies of his father's works in translation, because uh, Michael taught French uh, in the British system. So he would often get the translations, and he was very interested in seeing whether his father's words were translated correctly. And what he would do with those books, he specifically saved them up and took them with him on vacations into Switzerland. And he would write this in the books, and you could tell that he would take these tr translated books of his father's, Lord of the Rings, to Vengen, Switzerland, which was actually the original inspiration for Rivendell because his father went there as a young boy and, and hiked there, and that's where Rivendell. So he would have the view of his father's 
you know, inspiration for Rivendell as he looked through his father's works, inspired by Rivendell in translation in French. And in there, what all he did was circle words that he did not think translated. And that's it. That was all it. He would say in the beginning, I don't know what this is. And then, yeah, and then he would do that. But that was his way of relaxing on vacation. Very different from reading, very different from reading the British political books, which he definitely had opinions about. So I had three hours of history seniors at Bryn Mawr College about two weeks ago, <laughs> where I was trying to get across to them sort of, um, you know, both books and digital objects are artifacts of their own very complicated histories. And I was wondering if you had ideas for good pedagogical exercises to get your argument across. I can give you one of the examples of the books that I have never managed to read through all the way because I keep on coming across references that wouldn't necessarily change the actual book, but that just make me, might make me wonder about what might have happened. Um, I think it, it doesn't hurt if it's something where you can bring it in, but uh, with all Reese Isaacs, Landon Carter's and an Easy Kingdom, um, which, and he does in the first section basically do the usual book history things. He describes the books, talks about their condition, their size, their creation, notes in passing, notes that some of them are missing, and notes in passing that they're, they're still owned by the original family, even though they're in the, in the holdings of the University of Virginia at this point. And then later, I think it's actually only within the next chapter or so, he all, the, Isaac also mentions that the Carter left these out, naming for them to be read, and that they were read, um, which to me, and, and I'm not, I, don't know, I don't know that it would have changed anything about the book, but, Carter, but Isaac's argument about Carter is that it, it talks about his rebellion against England, but also resisting the rebellion of his sons and of his slaves. And just the unknown about those are still preserved in his family. They were read, his fam so his family and his sons who preserved them must have known, but there's also some that are missing. So just some kinds of these <coughs> mysteries, um, or also potentially for an exercise, it would be to take the bibliography or the notes of, of something and look through and say, where did these come from? Um, because one of the other things I've been thinking about is that with the citation software, especially if you can do some kind of joint project, is to start tracking where people get to different things. With citation software, if you include a column, basically which database or which collection you find stuff in, then you can start looking later and saying, okay, am I finding most of my stuff in this collection or most of it in another thing? What that might that say about it? Um, certainly my own work, as you of course know, too much, uh, is on historical societies in the US from 1790 to 1850. And one of the things I realized I really had to at least address to some extent in the final product is how much it's affected by which historical societies survived for me to look over their records versus the ones that went under. Uh, another possible way in would be to just think about kind of the truisms of the field and then try to pro push at uh, what kind of archive evidentiary support there is for that. So there's one of the standard things we say about the 17th century is the, the number of uh, books published in English explodes with the collapse of censorship in 1641. And you have graphs, you know, and it looks like some seismograph uh, with an earthquake. No doubt the number of books printed um, increased. But there were no collectors of there weren't people collect trying to collect everything being published before you know the king and parliament start looking like they're going to go to war against one another, and so 
a lot of what we have, it, it's supposedly the evidence for this big spike is the result of Thompson uh, happening, to happening to collect stuff. And so we don't know how much has been lost. And I think that getting students to think about how you know, these graphs of the number of titles are not a self-evident truth that you can work with, but the result of incalculable loss and things like that can be a way in. One last thing would be also give them an archival, some kind of archival collection, or just some materials and tell them, put them in order. And if each group has the same materials, are they all going to put them in the same order? And I think it might take a little while, but you could probably come up with a good one where you'll have at least three or four different how they've arranged materials. Unless we have another question, I think that the most that we get in this is for refreshments. Thank you and thank you.